Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to one of our first of the month solo deep dive episodes. It's just you and just me today. And I got to tell you, I'm really excited for today's topic. And that's because a big part of relational self-awareness is understanding how the past travels with us. And, you know, in all of the episodes, we're connecting those dots from our early experiences to our lives today. But that's our sole focus. We're going to go into a lot of detail about the families we grow up in and how the past comes forward, how at times our past shows up in the present moment, how our early experiences shape our lives today, and how our early experiences, when they were confusing or painful, create constrictions on what we're able to experience in our lives today. And how by connecting the dots between then and now, we can begin to get ourselves free. We can begin to access those long denied parts of ourselves. And as we heal ourselves, we create new possibilities for our relationships. This idea that introspection and intimacy go hand in hand. We do this deep and often difficult work of exploring our past, not to punish the people who raised us and not as some sort of like esoteric activity. We do the work of self-reflection so that we can create new possibilities for our lives today so that we can reimagine love. (laughs) So on the show, you have heard me talk about and talk to this quote-unquote little you. This little you is the younger version of you that lives inside of you today. As I say that, I put my hand up to my chest, which is always where my hand goes when I'm talking to your little you or when I'm tending to my little me. My hand goes right here to my chest. So little you is this younger version of you that carries so many memories and early impressions and early experiences and that is so at risk of getting activated in any of our relationships today, but especially in your intimate relationship. So it's a huge topic, but today I've got us focused on understanding and tending to your inner child, your little you. And I'm going to do that by unpacking this idea that when a family system is struggling, the members of that family get lodged in particular roles. They get stuck in roles. And those roles limit their growth and their self-expression. So we're going to do three things. One, I'm going to talk about your original love classroom, which is the family system that you grew up in. Two, I'm going to help you have a sense of some of the roles that family systems cast family members into so that you can get super clear on the role that you played in your family of origin. And three, we're going to explore how you begin to get freed up from a role that you once played that you never frankly asked for. If you've been listening to the show for a hot minute, you know that when we do one of these solo deep dive episodes, we also create a companion worksheet that is for our newsletter subscribers. 
So if you're already subscribed to the newsletter, the worksheet for this episode is going to just magically arrive in your inbox. If you are not a subscriber, head over to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash roles, R-O-L-E-S. And that's the way that you can download today's worksheet. You know, one of the core tenets of relational self-awareness is this idea that the self is profoundly relational. We come to know who we are through the relationships that we're in. You are forever shaping and shaped by the relationships you're in. And that has been true since you took your very first breath. And it's going to be true until you take your very last breath. You are not some kind of self-contained unit. You are in connection with all that is around you. Einstein called it the delusion of separateness. When we act as if we do not belong to and participate in the systems around us. And the system that we are specifically going to be analyzing today is the family system, specifically the family system that you grew up in, or what I call your original love classroom. And I call it that because it's your original love classroom. It's where you first witnessed and experienced love modeled by the people who were charged with raising you. And when you are little old being, you consciously and subconsciously, explicitly and implicitly took note of all the behaviors and all the emotions of all of the big people around you. In this way, you received messages growing up, some of them healthy and helpful, others of them unhealthy and unhelpful. And all of those messages shape your understanding of yourself and they impact the way that you understand and interact with love and with the people you love today. And the experiences that you had in your original love classroom form what I call your love template. And your love template lives inside of you as a map almost. It's like a network, a particular set of expectations, of hopes, of fears, of longings, of beliefs that you bring into your intimate relationship based on those early experiences. I think of your love template, this like internal kind of network of beliefs and hopes and fears kind of gives you this particular pair of glasses, this lens through which you experience what's happening right here, right now in your intimate relationship. This love template of yours develops as a blend of two elements. Your love template is formed, it's forged as an amalgam, a blend of these two things. Number one, the observations that you made when you were a little person surrounded by big people, you made a whole lot of observations. And two, experiences you had. You also were treated in particular ways. You were talked to in particular ways. You were related to in particular ways. Okay, so your love template is like a blend of the observations and the direct experiences. So when we think about the observations that you made, what were you making sense of? What were you observing? Well, you were observing how the big people talked to each other. You were observing differences that you saw between how the girls and women in your family were treated versus how the boys and men were treated. You were observing how big emotions got handled, where they talked through, where their door slammed, was their icy silence. You were observing what people did with their big emotions. You were observing how differences of opinions were handled. You know, big person A wanted to move and big person B wanted to stay where they were. How did they get through that? How did they make sense of it? How did they negotiate? You observed how the big people touched or didn't touch each other. You watched that all shake out. You observed who was allowed to ask for what in what circumstances. <laughs> By the same token, you also observed who was not allowed to ask for what in what circumstances and what they did instead. Did they 
suppress what they wanted? Did they go around a sneaky way to get what they wanted, right? You are watching all of that from a very, very early age and making sense of it the best way you knew how. And then you had a set of experiences, right? So we were saying the love template forms as a blend of the observations and the experiences. So you also, all the while, were being related to, right? People were talking to you. So that was the other half of the equation here of what formed your love template. So the experiences that you had, you experienced, you know, what you were allowed to ask for and what you were not allowed to ask for. You experienced which feelings of yours were tolerated, which ones were celebrated, and which ones were just simply shut down. You experienced and noticed the kinds of things that you received praise for, as well as the kinds of things that you were punished for. You had experiences of touch, right? And you learned about how you were touched, who touched you, in what contexts, and why. You were told, or at least you were related to, in particular ways based on your sex and your gender. And you were told what you could not be or should not be based on your sex and your gender, right? So you, you made sense of who you were, how that aspect of self, your gendered self, who you got to be and who you, you know, were told you probably shouldn't be based on your gender. So on Reimagining Love, I'm often asking you to examine the features of your original love classroom, of your family of origin, right? We're oftentimes talking about where does that pattern come from? What's the first time you remember feeling that? How did you watch the big people in your house, you know, handle whatever our topic is of the week, jealousy or stuckness? And when you are looking in the rearview mirror and examining the features of your original love classroom, the goal is to help you understand that love template that formed, that emerged based on all those experiences. Because your love template gives you, frankly, a set of strengths and growing edges and preferences and blind spots that you bring into your intimate relationships. Even your first intimate relationship, you didn't go in as some kind of a blank slate. You went in with particular preferences, particular notions, and the degree to which you understand that is the degree to which you can figure out what's working and what needs to be transformed. Okay, so let's really take a look at your particular original love classroom, your family system, like the structure of it, how it functioned, and why it functioned that way. And we're going to do that through the lens of systems theory. Yeah, that is right. I'm going to hit you up here with a little bit of systems theory 101. So buckle up. I think you're going to find this helpful. I think it's going to give you a different perspective on like family. It's like you and I are like backed up right now, kind of sitting side by side, and we're putting your family system in front of you. We're putting like the idea of a family system in front of us. And I'm hoping that you will put your own family system in front of us and just kind of look at your family as a system, like kind of zoomed out, stepped back, like what is a family system? And that's the thing. A family is a system, which means that it has all of the properties that any system has. Think an ecological system. Think an educational system. Think, if you want, a digestive system. What this means is that a family, like all systems, is more than just a collection of individuals. A family is a system of interconnected and interdependent individuals. And as good old Aristotle said, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that's true for every system. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. There are dynamics that emerge in the spaces between people. And those dynamics shift and change both the individual and the system itself. This also means that change in one part of a system affects the entire system. You see that even when the change 
is chosen. You know, when there is a family system that has been organized around one member's addiction, for example, which is what happens, right? When one member of a family is struggling with addiction, the rest of the family needs to accommodate that addiction, which means that when that person becomes sober, even though the sobriety lives inside of them, right? They are practicing their sobriety, but just the same way their addiction shapes the whole system, their sobriety shapes the whole system, right? You make change in one part of a system and you shape the entire system. You shift the system. You stir up the system. This means also that like all systems, a family system practices homeostasis. Homeostasis, <laughs> definition coming at you. It's going to bring up memories of, you know, high school biology here. Homeostasis is a self-regulatory process. And it's a process that helps a system maintain stability while adjusting to changing external conditions. So a simple biological example is that when we heat up, we sweat to cool ourselves off, right? Our body temperature increases, our body produces sweat, the sweat cools us off. That's an example of a mechanism, the sweat, that helps the body create homeostasis, right? Create stability in the face of a changing context. Well, because we're saying a family is a system, that means that a family system is driven to maintain homeostasis as well. And how does a family maintain homeostasis? Well, we're going to get into a lot of different aspects of that, but through rules and roles and expectations, a family system is driven to approximate, create homeostasis, to create a sense of stability amidst change. With our sweat example, the goal there is to maintain a consistent internal temperature in the face of a changing context like fever or exercising or being out in the sun. And with our family example, the goal in the largest sense is to stay together, is to create some kind of stability. And as we'll see in a moment, when a family system is struggling, that family system will attempt to create an approximation of stability by any means necessary. For a family system, the changing context is some kind of a dynamic blend of both normative and non-normative stressors, right? Expected and unexpected stressors. And the thing we know for sure is that change is inherently stressful. Even normative changes like children starting school or adolescence or menopause, those are all normative and inherently stressful. And even chosen changes, like having a baby or starting a new job or getting a promotion, those are chosen changes and change is inherently stressful. And this means clearly, of course, that so-called non-normative or unexpected stressors are hard. Unexpected challenges like sickness, job loss, addiction, infidelity, trauma, and for families that occupy one or more marginalized identities, there are added stressors of systemic racism, religious oppression, economic inequality that have a compounding effect on all of this. So a family system needs to adapt not just to changing contexts, but also purely the changes that just happen with time. Parents can be clicking along with an infant, and then this little infant becomes a toddler, and there's a whole new set of challenges involved in parenting a toddler that require the parent to adapt. And I will say that sometimes a parent-child relationship is clicking along just fine, and then the parent and the child start to struggle with each other, or specifically the parent starts to struggle with the child. When this happens in a clinical setting, when I'm working with a family, a family system, a couple, and there's a kind of a previously pretty smooth relationship between a parent and one of the kids, and then the relationship gets really tumultuous, one of my places that I start is by asking that parent what their own life was like when they were this child's age. 
Ooh, this is a big one and it's an important one. And sometimes what's happening is the relationship between parent and child becomes tumultuous, not necessarily exclusively because of something going on with that child, but because something that's going on inside of the parent that involves little me, right? The parent's little me has gotten activated and the parent's little me activation sort of ends up wrecking havoc on the relationship between the parent and the kid. Because sometimes what happens is that parent's little me is watching their own kid experience a kind of freedom that they could only have dreamt about at that age. So what comes up inside of the parent is this kind of complicated mix of like envy and sadness and pride that's like, you don't know how good you have it, like that sort of a feeling. And that can can end up, you know, manifesting in some conflict between the parent and the kid. Or sometimes it is that the child has reached the age that the parent was when the parent experienced a trauma. So what's coming up inside of the parent is a ton of fear, right? The parent's little me is experiencing a lot of fear because the parent's little me is watching this kid, you know, be the age, live through the age that the parent was when the parent experienced a trauma. So if any part of this lands for you, either as the kid in the example or as the parent in the example, just take a breath here. Like just sort of pause here and take a breath because all of our relational self-awareness work is about illuminating what's beneath the surface, not to blame, but to understand. So what we know for sure is that a healthy family system is a bit of a Goldilocks situation. A healthy family system is not too rigid and not too chaotic. I want to highlight what Dr. Dan Siegel from episode number 17 of Reimagining Love, what he has identified as the five hallmarks of a healthy family system. One, a healthy family system is flexible. Members of a healthy family system can show up in all kinds of different ways and still belong. They can be kind of like energetic one day kind of sullen one day. They can be productive one day, a bit, you know, lazy one day. There's a flex, you know, ability to be flexible in who you are versus you're the smart one or you're the pretty one. In a healthy family system, you get to contain multitudes, as Walt Whitman once said. Okay. Second property or hallmark of a healthy family system is that a healthy family is adaptive. The rules change over time and in different contexts. And when one family member isn't doing very well, other ones can pick up the slack a little bit, right? Versus getting kind of stuck in this idea of, well, it has to be this way because we've always done it this way. A healthy family system can adapt to changes. The third one is a healthy family system is coherent. You can kind of track like a narrative arc of, who we were, who we are, who we're going to be. There's a sense of like tradition and ritual and narrative that binds together past, present, and future versus in a system that's struggling, things feel kind of chaotic or there's not really a a through line that you can follow. In fact, this is a research finding that I learned years and years ago. A researcher interviewed, she kind of collected life stories of men who grew up in homes with domestic violence and then went on to perpetrate domestic violence on their partners. Holtzman Monroe was her name. What she found is that when she collected the life stories of these men who committed domestic violence, the life story, like they really couldn't tell you a coherent life story. Their life story was sort of all over the place because there was a lot of trauma in these men's own past that really compromise their ability to experience a sense of coherence of who I was, who I am, who I want to be, who my family was, who my family is, the direction that my family is heading. So that sense of coherence is one of the, another hallmark of a healthy family system. The fourth one is energized. Healthy family systems are energized, like not manic, but also not flat. 
meaning that people bring energy to their interactions. Toni Morrison has this beautiful clip of a show she did with Oprah, where she talked about the importance of parents letting their faces light up when their kids walk in the room. That's what I always think of when I think of this energized quality, right? This idea that like your face lights up when your kid walks in the room. And as a kid, you get the delight of knowing that you have the power to make people's faces light up, that there's energy in the system and people are glad to see each other. There's greetings, there's goodbyes, there's some energy there. The fifth hallmark is stability. In a healthy family system, there is a, you know, a measure of stability. You know with reasonable confidence who's going to be where and when. This is one of the original self-help writers, M. Scott Peck, called a relationship of constancy. He described love as a relationship of constancy. There's a sense of like, I know you've got my back. I know you're going to be there if you say you're going to be there. Versus things being unstable and unpredictable and living with a fear of abandonment or actual experiences of abandonment. Okay, so deep breath on those as well. Those qualities, you know, create an environment where little people can feel safe and seen and secure and soothed, which are Dan Siegel's four S's that little people need. Seen, safe, secure, and soothed. But we know that not every family system embodies those five qualities or not all five of those qualities all at once or, you know, gets three out of the five some of the time. And we don't have to be perfect. No family has to be perfect, especially if you're a parent who's listening. You know darn well that striving for perfection is going to be a very fast, dead-end road to anxiety and disconnection. But those are kind of, you know, those five qualities, flexibility, adaptability, coherence, energy, stability, those kind of give us a a sense of the direction that we're heading in. But let's talk about what happens when a family system struggles in any way with addiction, with an infidelity, with unpredictable social context, whatever the struggle is, when a family system is struggling, the thing we know for sure is that little people are going to become who the big people need them to be. That's what we know for sure. When a family system is struggling, little people become who the big people need them to be. Why? Because of homeostasis, because of that natural tendency for any system to seek stability. So in the wake of unpredictability, instability, chaos, little people are going to just naturally, as easy as the next breath, they're going to become who the big people need them to be in order to create some approximation of homeostasis. My big people are overwhelmed. I will become easy. My big people are lost in their own worlds. I will become such a shining superstar that they won't be able to ignore me. My big people are fighting a lot. I will cause some problems of my own in the hopes to distract them from each other. As Gabor Mate teaches, little people trade authenticity for belonging. Little people will shut down that which is true and real for them for the sake of belonging. Why? Because the need for safety supersedes everything else. Little people are incredibly vulnerable and they need to be part of a system in order to quite literally survive, right? Little people are wholly dependent on their caregivers and they have to do what needs to be done to ensure their safety and their survival. And listen, big people care for little people at the level of their awareness and to the degree of their healing. And you were born into a particular family system at a particular moment in time. And by the way, you were born with a particular temperament and a particular set of inherent qualities as well. We're never going to solve the nature-nurture debate, and my field has given up trying. But for sure, you came into this world with some distinct, particular you-ness. And you were shaped by your environment 
but you also had some, you know, factory settings, so to speak. Which is why, by the way, developmental psychologists talk about this idea of goodness of fit between a little person and their big person. So if you watched your mom, for example, have a quote unquote better relationship with your sister than she had with you, perhaps it is in part that your mom and your sister are both wired to be more laissez-faire and easygoing, and you are wired to be more intense. There is just like actually a difference in your factory settings. You know, you are temperamentally more intense. Your mom and your sister are temperamentally more laissez-faire. And so the chemistry between the two of them is different than the chemistry between you and your mom. But what we know for sure is that big people care for little people at the level of their awareness and to the degree of their own healing. And as we unpack the lessons that you learned in your original love classroom, I want to offer you three dialectics. You know, I call dialectics both ands. A dialectic or a both and is this kind of complicated emotional space where two seemingly opposite things are true at the same time. And we are more emotionally expanded. We are more emotionally sturdy when we can kind of breathe into a both and, when we can hold on to these two seemingly opposite truths without foreclosing on one or the other. You have heard me talk on the show about both ands before. I I love them. (laughs) They're everywhere in my work. But a both and is this space, this sort of paradoxical space where we have to hold on to a measure of complexity for the sake of our emotional health and for the sake of our relational health. So I have three of them that I want to share with you. And I'm going to give them to you almost like mantras that are going to guide our examination of family patterns. So the first both and is this. My big people did the best they could when I was a little person. And I did not get everything I needed when I was a little person. Both pieces are true. The big people did the best they could do when I was a little person. And I did not get what I needed when I was a little person. This both and space likely evokes a pretty complicated set of feelings inside of you, right? Sadness about what you endured when you were little, frustration about the impacts that linger today, anger that the big people didn't, quote unquote, get their acts together as they were raising you so that you could have been spared some of this, and perhaps compassion and sadness for the ways that the big people who raised you were struggling. That's just sad that they struggled. As Dr. Mona Fishbane from episode number 22 of Reimagining Love, as she says, your parents are your grandparents' children. And so sometimes when you, when you zoom out on your family tree and you look at who your parents were raised by, that can be a bit of a compassion opener, can't it? Where you see that, yes, your parents struggled and they did pretty well given how they were raised, right? Which is another kind of complicated set of feelings to hold. But that's a compassion opener. That can be a grief opener of knowing that your parents did the best they could with what they were given and with the kind of inheritances that they had from their own original love classrooms. And my last point here is that if you are also a parent yourself, perhaps this dialectic of my parents did the best they could and I didn't get what I needed, perhaps this dialectic evokes inside of you some fear that perhaps your kids someday will listen to an episode like this and perhaps they will feel not wholly dissimilar to the way that you feel about your own parents. And if that's the case, nice deep breath, hand on your heart. As a fellow parent, I certainly relate to this one. And I will remind you, (laughs) because I will always remind you, that your parents very likely did not invest 
in relational self-awareness, the way that you are, which means that your kid's inheritance is not going to be the same as your inheritance. You are working right now in real time to transform patterns. So your kids will have stuff because we all have stuff and it's important that we get to have our stuff. But your kid's stuff will not be the same as your stuff. It very likely will be lighter stuff and you will very likely be a more compassionate witness for their stuff than perhaps your parents have been to you. That's my hope at least. Okay, both and number two. I can be both loyal and critical. One of the strategies that family systems sometimes use to maintain homeostasis is placing a high value on loyalty. If for whatever reason, a family system cannot trust that connection will be maintained based on love and as a desire to spend time together, that system will attempt to ensure stability and connection through demands of loyalty. You must belong rather than, of course, you want to belong. So if your family placed a high value on loyalty, it may feel to you like loyalty and criticism are opposites, but that is not the case. In the best of scenarios, we critique, we reflect, we analyze, we examine in the service of healing and growing and maintaining connection. I really believe that you can be loyal to your original love classroom, even as you reflect on ways in which the dynamics you saw and experienced were harmful to you. Your critique does not destroy your loyalty and your loyalty need not prevent your critique. Both and number three, I can be both connected to my family system and healing from the impact of my family system. And listen, this is not always possible. In some situations, people do actually need to create emotional cutoffs from their family of origin in order to heal. I know that. And I know that in some situations, people may need to, at the very least, take some space and some time in order to heal. But I also do want to remind you that just like loyalty and criticism are not opposites, connection and healing are also not opposites. It is often the case that you can reflect on your past, tend to little you, and remain in connection with the big people who raised you. You will very likely start to feel a bit different to those people, and you may very likely begin to respond to them in different ways. You may start to redirect conversations in a way that you didn't used to. You may begin to ask for things you didn't used to ask for. But it can be so powerful to create new experiences with these very same people who have known you forever. And as I said earlier, change in one part of the system affects the system. So the changes that you are making change your family system. If you stop doing what you've always done, they cannot keep doing what they have always done. And when that happens, you get to have a new experience of them. Like you really get to start to feel that recursive, that back and forth impact of when you change one part, you change the whole dance. Okay, I want to move on and talk in some more specific detail about this idea of roles. As I said earlier, even when a family system is struggling, homeostasis remains primary, right? The system is going to do what the system is going to do, and systems seek to create homeostasis. And a family system may attempt homeostasis by casting family members into roles, that is a pretty darn efficient and effective means of creating homeostasis is by putting people into roles. Roles limit full expression. Roles simplify. Roles are corner cutters. They are shortcuts. They are attempts to make things easier. They are attempts to reduce complexity. They are attempts to create stability. 
And roles do all of that at a cost. And if you got stuck in a role in your original love classroom when you were growing up, when you were little you, the cost of that role likely included things like not having access to your emotions, not knowing how to express your emotions, not being able to follow your actual interests and passions, not being able to relax, let your guard down, and or not being able to develop parts of yourself. And my caveat is, of course, that perhaps your family system may not have cast you into a role. You may have been raised by big people who had the capacity to see you in all of your complexity and to hold space for you as you evolved. If so, you might not see yourself in any of these roles that we're about to discuss, or you may see parts of yourself in all of these roles we're about to discuss because you had a different place in your family system at different moments in time. So what I'm about to do is I'm going to talk you through six roles that I've captured kind of spelled out for you. And these are the roles that I see little people commonly being cast into. It's sort of a, think of this as like a typography of family roles derived from my 20 plus years of being a therapist and teaching students. And I'm going to give each of these roles a name. You know, you are welcome to tweak these, add your own if you don't feel like you're represented here. But these are the ones that I have seen most commonly. As a reminder, there is a companion worksheet that spells out these six roles and that offers you some relational self-awareness questions designed to help you identify your role, the role that you played in your original love classroom. And you can use this worksheet to spark a conversation also with your partner about their role. It's a really lovely kind of conversation, a, a way of having a deeper understanding of who you were in your family of origin and who your partner was in their family of origin. It's a big, big, big compassion opener. So if you're already on our newsletter, you're going to receive this worksheet in your inbox, easy peasy. Otherwise, you can head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash roles, and that link is going to be in our show notes. Okay, for these six roles, I'm going to share with you the name of the role, the function that role plays in terms of creating and maintaining homeostasis in a family system, the gifts you may have developed as a result of playing that role, and the challenges you may experience in your life today as a result of having been cast in that role. I feel like I need a little bit of a drum roll here. <laughs> a drum roll, speaking of roles. Okay, are you ready? The first role I'm calling the perfect one. The function of that role, the reason that a family system casts usually one of their kids into the role of the perfect one, the function of that role is to prove that the family is okay. We can't be doing that badly if we have the superstar athlete, this straight A student, this you know violin virtuoso. And so the gift that comes along with having been cast in the role of the perfect one is that you can perform, you can stay cool under pressure, and you are likely highly competent. The challenge that oftentimes accompanies having played the part of the perfect one is that you, perhaps in your life today, expect a lot from yourself and others. You may struggle with some perfectionism, some type A. You may go hard because that was your original way that you knew yourself. You had to go hard. You had to be perfect. And so you don't know how to put yourself in some kind of a semi-retirement, some sort of part-time status in that role. The second role is the easy one. The easy one is usually, the, again, the kid who just doesn't ask for much. Like they're just kind of flying beneath the radar. They're not causing much of a fuss. They're a go-along to get along kind of a person. The function of sort of turning one kid in a family into the easy one is that you reduced stress on the big people. You saw stressed out people and you asked as little as possible. The gifts that likely came from you playing that role is you are likely really flexible. 
you are likely highly adaptive, and you are likely quite independent. The challenge you may experience in your life today is you may find it difficult to be vulnerable or have a difficult time asking for help because you just aren't used to taking up space, slowing people down and saying, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't work for me. So that may be your challenge or your growing edge. Okay, rule number three, I'm calling the struggling one. This is the one who kind of took up a lot of resources in the family because they had challenges, issues. There was always something going on with you. The function here is that some, you know, listen, sometimes challenges and issues are biological, they are organic. And I just want to hold open the possibility that when a family has a struggling one, one of the things that does is it organizes the family around a common goal, whether that is helping you or resourcing you or spreading the word about you, right? Sort of like the function there is to kind of organize the family around a common goal. Think about that as that's a homeostatic function, isn't it? It's creating a kind of stability through organizing, through working together. So the gift that you may have grown up with is the gift of self-advocacy, the gift of resilience, staying strong in the face of challenges, and your challenge in your life today or your growing edge in your life today may be that perhaps you're a bit dependent on others and perhaps you have a bit of difficulty standing up for yourself because you're so used to people advocating for you because the family, when the family was advocating for you, they were kind of organized around that common goal. How are you doing? Are you breathing? Are you feeling flooded? What's going on with you as you listen to this? Okay, role number four is I'm calling the peacemaker. So the function of the peacemaker is creating a sense of family unity. The peacemaker is the one who's kind of going between, you know, big person number one and big person number two and trying to kind of smooth things over. If there's conflict between a parent and a kid, the peacemaker is trying to help each side understand each other better. The function here is that this function creates homeostasis by creating a sense of unity, right? You're trying to bring people back together. You're trying to ease the tensions. The gift for you that you likely developed because you play this role is an immense amount of compassion, the ability to protect people who need protection, and the ability to collaborate because you were, you know, running collaborations, running negotiations between factions, between subsystems in your family system. Your growing edge very likely is difficulty expressing anger, perhaps even difficulty identifying your emotions at all because you were so focused on what other people were feeling, you know, helping them with their feelings, helping them with their issues, that it might be really hard for you to identify your own feelings, your own issues, your own needs. Role number five, I'm calling the helper or the confidant. Sometimes this type of role is called the parentified child. So this is a little person who kind of functions in the family system more like a big person. They're the helper, they're the confidant. Here, the function of having a helper or confidant role is that having someone like this, having a little person like this, is that that person can really empathize with the challenges and difficulties that are facing the big people. So when a little person plays this role, the big person feels less alone in their struggle. The big person feels justified in their hurt. So the function there is creating stability, creating homeostasis by ensuring that the big people don't feel alone with their pain because they've got a helper or a confidant. They've got a parentified child who can kind of function like a little bit of a family counselor, if you will. The gifts you developed, if you played this role, you very likely are um, quite empathic. You very likely have a lot of patience and you very likely are gentle. Those are probably some qualities that describe you. Your growing edge or your challenge in your life today is you may have some difficulty with boundaries, right? Because you are looking more like an adult in your family than a kid. So it may be hard for you to understand boundaries. When should you step in? When should you step back? And you may struggle with a need to be needed. You may feel like a lot of your own self-worth is around the need to be needed. And then number six, I'm calling the rebel. 
I was recently teaching at a workshop and I presented five and somebody stayed after and they were like, I think you need a sixth one in there. I think you need to include the rebel. And I was like, okay, say more. (laughs) So this is a hot off the presses, new addition to my little matrix of roles here. The function of the rebel is that the rebel oftentimes will say what nobody else will say or do what nobody else will do. And it almost seems like this is like an anti-homeostasis, but there's something about creating stability by making sure that all paths are being considered, by making sure that the system still belongs to the larger system. If you have a rebel, the rebel is kind of like stepping away from the family and doing their own thing. And that kind of ensures that the family system isn't totally isolated from the rest of the world. The gifts that the rebel may have developed, because it's hard, it's hard to rebel, especially against your family system, the people who raised you, the people you are dependent on. But if you were the rebel, you very likely developed an immense amount of courage, right? It may be hard to scare you. You kind of step away. You know how to be brave. You perhaps have a sense of justice and a sense of leadership. The growing edges for you or the challenges for you may be some hypervigilance because you're always kind of like watching, am I being sucked in? Am I being held back? Am I being different enough? Am I being seen as different from these other people, the rest of the group, the rest of the crew? And there can be some hypervigilance and exhaustion in that. And it may be difficult for you to connect. If you're so invested in being different, it may be hard for you to connect through sameness or similarity or belonging, like belonging, blending in, fitting in, assimilating might feel kind of scary for you or unnatural for you. So there may be some challenges there around doing that because you've been so invested in being a rebel because the family system needed a rebel. Okay, (laughs) I've given you a lot. So the recognition piece here is identifying that you in part became who your family of origin needed you to be. And embodying that role likely created a sense of safety and control for you. And it likely helped your family, again, find some homeostasis. The challenge, of course, is that because you were stuck in that role, other parts of you perhaps didn't have a chance to develop, right? So the easy one needs some practice saying, hold up, slow down. This plan is not going to work for me. And the rebel maybe needs some practice going with the flow and being okay, not standing out and not being different. And the perfect one needs some practice falling apart, taking their foot off the gas pedal, resting, knowing where you were, knowing the role you played points you towards where you need likely some more practice. Okay, I want to finish up the episode by talking about where do we go from here, right? We've done a lot of illuminating. We've done a lot of identifying. There likely have been some like light bulb moments for you, some insights, some puzzle pieces going together. I will say that recognizing that you did play that role, that there was a cost emotionally and relationally for that role is, of course, a huge first step towards disentangling you from who you needed to be so that you can begin to claim and embrace and become who you actually want to be, right? So you can put that old role into retirement or at least semi-retirement because maybe you don't want to retire it all the way because as you've heard me say before, our gifts and our wounds tend to be next door neighbors. So I don't love the idea of you throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. I like the idea of kind of capitalizing on the gifts that came from this role you played while tending to the parts of you that weren't allowed to grow and flourish and express. So here's some things, some more specific things I want you to think about as you figure out kind of where to go from here. I really like this mantra that I learned from my friend, Dr. Holly Richmond, who was episode number 12 of Reimagining Love. The mantra is, that was then, this is now. So I want you to recognize the progress that you've made. I want you to honor and acknowledge the past while also being grateful that now you get to decide how to do love, how to do relationships, what role you want to inhabit rather than the role you have to have because it's being imposed on you. And to remember that you are free to write your own story going forward. I want you to let yourself feel the grief of having to witness 
whatever painful dynamics you witnessed between the big people who raised you or between other members of your family, if that was the case for you. I want you to remember that the only person who can give you permission and invite you to heal your inner child, your little you, is you. You don't have to involve other members of your family. You don't have to wait for apologies. You get to do this for yourself and in the service of your current and future partners, your current and future child and family, and just your current and future you. I want you to remember to feel really proud of the introspection that you're doing. The downside, of course, of not addressing intergenerational patterns in your family system is that those patterns are going to continue. That's what patterns do. But the upside is that by addressing these patterns, you shift the entire arc of your lineage and you benefit not just yourself, but future generations of your family. That's so freaking cool. And it takes courage and it matters. Let's talk a bit about how to know when your little you is struggling. Like, how do you even know when the past and the present are getting kind of muddy for you? So as you identify the role that little you had to play, this can help you understand and predict the situations in which little you is at risk of getting activated. So for me, because I grew up in the role of the perfect one, my little me tends to get activated in situations where I'm afraid of screwing up, like where the stakes are high, I'm afraid I'm going to screw up, or I'm afraid I'm going to get blamed for something going wrong. So figure out what those situations are for you based on the role you played. But here are at least four signs that little you has gotten kicked into action mode and that you're responding at least in part from that younger part of you. Sign number one is that there's a distinct shift in your physiology, like something in your body changes. You feel a flush in your cheeks. You feel a tightness in your chest. Your heart starts racing. There's a twist in your gut. Sign number two is that your reaction to this very moment, this very situation, feels out of proportion to what's happening in the moment, right? The reaction feels big, when in fact, the stakes in this moment right now are relatively small. As therapists love to say, if it's hysterical, it's historical, right? When our reaction is big, it very often is a sign or a signal that little you has taken the wheel and is trying to manage the situation because it feels familiar. It feels old. It carries echoes and resonances of the past. The third sign is that you feel in the moment right now so deeply misunderstood that you have a hard time taking somebody else's perspective. That's a sign that something from your past is coming up, right? You can't perspective shift. You can't see a bigger picture because, again, little you is driving the bus and little you is kind of fully embodying that old role and that old set of feelings and can't step back and see a bigger picture. And number four is that you experience urgency to do something. Like when there's that physiological reaction, then there's an urgency to do something, to make this phone call right now, or to overeat, to drink, to hit something, to, you know, go to sleep, like that kind of strong urgency to just do something. That's another flag that your reaction to this moment is being shaped, at least in part, by something old from your past. So what can you do? If you notice one, two, three, or four of those signs, what can you do? Number one is pause, right? Like push back against that urgency and just pause. Like take your hands off the keyboard, sit on your hands, like sit down on the floor, like just pause. Two, you can do something like to shift your physiology, you know, hold an ice cube, run your hands under warm water, run your hands under cool water, like notice the difference, like get very tactile, very in the moment, smell something, like make a cup of tea and really smell the aroma of the tea, like get yourself back in this moment. Three, scan your body. What part of your body wants to move and how? <laughs> As I'm talking about this, like I'm finding my body like sort of rocking back and forth. Like, does your body want to rock? Does your body want to curl into a ball and stretch back out again? Like, 
help your body respond because as we know, our bodies hold old pain. And so if we're responding from a little you part, if little you is activated, how does that part want to move, need to move? You can spend some time doing like tense and release of your muscles, squeezing your hands, letting them go, squeezing your legs, letting them go. Like again, we're getting into our bodies. You can do something that's very much more, a little bit more heady, like um, make categories for yourself. Start listing foods that start with letter R, listing cities that start with letter A, like these practices that just shift us from the intensity of the moment to something that is highly structured and highly simplistic. You can create a safe place inside of your mind. That's another one. That's number six. You can hug yourself. It's number seven. You can tap all over your body, tap from down to your feet up to your head. So these are all practices to kind of get us back to now. If we've time warped, if we feel like it's the past, if we feel like little you is kind of wanting to take charge of the situation, our job is to bring ourselves back to now. The ninth one is you could imagine little you. You could actually even pull out a photo of little you and you could talk to him or her. What does she need to hear? What does she need to know? And basically the bottom line is, I got you, right? This problem in this moment now is not a little girl or a little boy problem. This is a grown person problem. And I am a grown person with my big, strong shoulders and my wise mind. And I can handle this moment. This is not your job, little you. Like you get to go rest and play and not be in charge of this. So comforting, offering comfort to little you is a beautiful practice that helps you honor the past, who you had to be, while reminding yourself that that is not who you are now. That is not how you have to be. You have resources available to you now that you did not have then. And the 10th one is to just savor the shit out of whatever you did. If you did any of those things, one through nine, your last job your last order of business is to just savor it because that's a difference, right? You did something different and that counts and that matters. Okay, my last piece for you is that you can take all of this, this whole episode and use it to spark and inspire conversation with your partner. You can take the worksheet and work through the worksheet together. You can each do the worksheet on your own and come together and talk about it. I love the idea of you talking to your partner about the role that you were cast in as a child. Explore together why that role might determine some of your pain points or triggers in your relationship today. And remember that talking about this is a context for your partner, not an excuse for when things get challenging between the two of you or when little you gets activated. Then You can get curious about your partner's inner child as well. You can ask them questions about who they were in their family of origin and what they saw growing up. And you can work together to figure out the role that your partner was cast into in their family of origin and how it affects them today. I even find that some couples find it helpful to post a photo of each of them as kids on the fridge or on the bathroom mirror or on their phones, whatever. And that looking at a photo, you know, not just of little you, but of your partner's little you can serve as a reminder to tread gently with this partner of yours. You know, that this partner of yours may look like a big, strong, you know, tough, empowered person. And inside of them is a little person who's still struggling to make sense of all of their thoughts and feelings and reactions. So sometimes that photo can serve as a a symbol or a reminder to, to be gentle and to be curious. After all, as Ram Das said, we're all just walking each other home. Okay, we did it. I love, love, loved being able to talk to you about what really is a core principle of relational self-awareness. So this was a really exciting really special episode for me to do with you. This was essential foundational stuff. I love talking about how experiences in your original love classroom become your love template and how the roles that you played in your original love classroom shape what you hope for, what you expect in your intimate relationships. 
And yes, the past travels with us, but it does not have to become our destiny because as we understand the impact of the past, as we develop practices to respond in more thoughtful, less reflective ways, we change ourselves and we change the people around us and we reimagine love. (laughs) So final reminder, there's a companion worksheet. I think you're going to find it very valuable. If you're in our newsletter community, you will get the worksheet in your inbox. Otherwise, you're going to head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash roles. And that link is going to be in the show notes. Okay, take care and be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.